testimonial or a testimony. I don't know what you call them these days. Just sharing kind of from my experience. And I want to kind of start with where it started for me, the story of what it means and what it meant for me to grow up in the South and then become a Christian in the South and now pastor and minister the gospel in the South. But I think it started for me, I had a, um, a dad's side of the family that was super into our family and especially our name. And from a very early age, it was instilled in me that, Sammy, here's why you're important. You are, do you know who your fifth great-grandfather is? Your fifth great-grandfather is a man named General Thomas Sumter, who, if you're from South Carolina, he's like one of the lesser-knowns. He's kind of one of the sadder American revolutionaries because he's, he's never in any of the books or anywhere, which is actually kind of humbling at the same time. But the Patriot was like half-based on parts of his life. And so from very early on, I would go to school and I would share. I would be like, guys, do you know who my fifth great-grandfather is? And it would get quiet, and I would share General Thomas Sumter. And it never really had the effect that I wanted it to have, but it still sounded cool in my mind. Until, flash forward, I'm in seminary, I went to RTS Charlotte, and for the first time I pick up a biography of General Thomas Sumter, the Gamecock, and I'm reading about, uh, in his older age, the way he worshipped at this church in Stateburg, South Carolina, which is in the middle of nowhere, right outside of Sumter. And I was reading, I'm, I'm kind of, I picked up the book thinking, I'm going to learn something about this great man. I was kind of hoping as I was reading it, he was going to be this great man of God, and also my grandfather, and also an American revolutionary war hero. Um, small age hero would be the correct way to say that. And then I learned that uh, at this Baptist church in Stateburg, every Sunday, literally this was the way he would come in church. The service would start, the pastor would welcome people, people would be seated, and then he and his family would be like do a little processional to his family pew. And I wanted to throw up as I read it, because I thought, how anti the gospel is this? And so it's a moment for me where I, this is kind of the, when I think about what it means to, to grow up in the South, this is a little bit of the conflict that I have. Uh, in some ways, we, we have, um, we, there, there are parts of our culture that really embrace Christianity, and there are parts of it that totally, totally miss it. And that's really what I want to do today, briefly, is think about kind of two things. One, why I hate the South, and then two, why I love the South. Why well, I love that I grew up here and get to be a part of it. So first, just thinking with me for a little bit about why I hate and why many of you, if you grew up in the South, hate it. And I just have, I think, like four or five things that as I was thinking about it that I started to think about. Here's the first. Is that there's a, maybe um, in, in many ways in the South, there's this focus on the outward over the inward. An outward appearance over inward reality. And I think about the way, there are kind of three different ways I think about the way this shows itself. One is in manners. Like I think my family wanted to, more than they wanted to instill the Bible in me, they wanted to instill me saying, yes ma'am, yes sir, no ma'am, no sir. 
Uh, Mabel, Mabel, I don't know what your family dinner times are like. My dad, who's not a believer, would say, you know, Mabel, Mabel, if you're able, keep your elbows off the table, which is a ridiculous one. And I would think, you know, this is what was kind of instilled. And thankfully, by God's grace, I married, um, I married a woman who, has, her dad's from Michigan, her mom's from California. And when we started raising our kids, and I was like, our kids are going to say yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am, and yes, sir, and no, sir. She was like, that's kind of stupid. I mean, when I heard it, I was like, are you even a Christian? <laughs> and then it sort of, we weren't, God has been really gracious. My wife has been so, so patient with me. And if she were here, she could tell you this whole part of God's gracious work in my life. So manners is one way. I think dress is another. Like it took, part of me wished, I didn't have the courage to do it, but I part of me wish I'd shown up in like all seersucker suit with like a bow tie and a little straw boat hat just to do this, just for like a little bit of interactive uh, theater maybe. But I, I mean, I remember being in seminary and think, going to a, a, a great gospel-centered church. And even still, like as a Christian and someone who is embracing and growing in the gospel, showing up to seminary in my jacket and, t- and bow tie and like looking down on everyone in their jeans and thinking, the Lord, cl- I'm clearly the serious one here. <laughs> like clearly I am the one who is taking worship seriously and like somehow missing what you know, the Lord says to David, the Lord looks upon the heart. And I wanted to say, no, the Lord looks upon the bow tie and sees our... So I think, you know, this idea of, of overvaluing uh, outward appear- the outward appearance of things versus the inward reality, I think another way is in just behaviors. So it's funny, like, as I think about sharing growing up, in the, especially in the Christian South, you know, I grew up in the Episcopal Church. It was a gospel-centered Episcopal Church. So I don't feel like I really grew up in kind of the, the fundamentalist part of the South. But I did get involved with a youth group that was very much that way. And I kind of went that way, I think, because, I, because of growing up in the South. And so for me, immediately when I became a Christian in my freshman year of high school, I really did think being a Christian really did mean you don't cuss, you don't drink, you don't have sex. All the kind of moralistic things that a lot of us can relate to. And I remember going, we had a, a thing in our high school called First Priority. I don't know if you had anything like that, but... It was, the idea was kind of like an FCA, but you would meet, to show that you were serious, you would meet at like 7 o'clock in the morning, and you would study the Bible together, just I guess to kind of tell your school, like, we're the real Christians here, we get up early to study the Bible. And I remember going my senior year to, um, to, to enter, this is kind of weird when you think back on how this, what these adults were thinking, but literally it was an interview, it was me and another guy about who should be the president of this Christian organization, and we had to tell them why we thought we should. <laughs> Just thinking about that is a little bit messed up. But I remember saying very confidently, uh, of course I should be the president of First Priority because I don't listen to any secular music. In fact, I sold all my CDs to buy only Christian music, which... I wish I could go back. I wish I had a time machine to go back and say, don't. I had this incredible collection, and then I bought really, really bad music, Christian music. (laughs) I don't listen to secular music, and I haven't missed a quiet time in over a year. And for me, in my heart, I was was dropping the mic. (laughs) And, I mean, I think they were kind of impressed by this. 
And then I, thought, I mean, I like to imagine what Jesus, the way Jesus was looking at me in that moment, thinking, "Oh, my friend, I can't wait to crush you." <laughs> but I, I mean, I think in, just intuitively, what I'm saying is, I really uh, everything in me thought Christianity was focused on kind of the more outward behaviors. And the thing, interestingly, that broke me, and this is what I think the downside of that is. And Keller puts this so well. He talks about when you kind of get into the legalistic sides of, of Christianity, you know, it really does lead you to pride and shame. And that's exactly what did for me. So that meant I was very proud, but then the way the Lord did crush me was through a relationship with a girl that we were doing everything within that relationship that we shouldn't have been doing. And yet I was so proud and so full of shame, I couldn't tell anyone about it. And it led to this season in college where I got extremely depressed because my pride would let me say what was going on, the ways I was really, you know, am I even a Christian if I can do this? And then my shame was also eating me up as well. Um, I think about Flannery O'Connor in some ways gets this for me, especially in her short stories. This, this idea of when we live in this focusing on the outward appearance over the inward reality, it really does lead us to pride and shame, guilt, a part of that shame as well. She's got this short story called The Peeler. It's one of her, I don't know if you've read it, it's one of her uh, lesser known ones. And the idea is this, this, this Hazel, is Hayes, Hazel Motes, if you know that character. And he's kind of growing up, his mom's a very strict fundamentalist Christian. His dad's sort of doing, off doing his own thing. And one of the, he's 10 years old and he goes to this, it's like a fair or circus kind of a thing. And for the first time he convinces the, the booth that's kind of the naked lady booth. He convinces the guy to let him in. He says he's 12, he's really 10, but the guy lets him in. He sees for the first time his first naked woman. And I want to read kind of the process, the way Plenary ends the story, thinking about the pride and the shame. Uh, His mom knows something has happened, and she's confronting him. And here's how the conversation goes. She says, Jesus died to redeem you, she said. I never asked him, he muttered. She didn't hit him again, but she stood looking at him, shut-mouthed, and he forgot the guilt of the tent for the nameless, I love this, he forgot the guilt of the tent for the nameless, unplaced guilt that that was in him. In a minute, she threw the stick away from her and went back to the wash pot, shut-mouthed, and the next day, he took his shoes in secret out into the woods. He never wore them except for revivals and in winter. And he took them out of the box and filled the bottoms of them with stones and small rocks, and then he put them on. He laced them up tight and he walked in them through the woods, what he knew to be a mile, until he came to a creek. And then he sat down and took them off and eased his feet in the wet sand. And he thought that ought to satisfy him, thinking about God. And I think for me, this focus on outward appearance over in reality does leave us in this place of, of, of deep shame, deep guilt that we don't know what to do with. And I hate that about the South. I hate about the South that. Because we focus on the outward, it keeps, us in, it, it, it keeps us in this double life sometimes. Where we really, for fear of what people, other people, will, how they will see us, it keeps us from telling our secrets. This pressure to appear perfect forces us into places of pride and shame. That's the first one. The second one is this. Thinking about what I hate about the South. Is there's a valuing over, of tradition over truth. A, a valuing of this is the way we do things versus this is what the Bible says or this is what the, how the gospel changes us. Um, I was just having lunch with a group of seminary friends and he was telling me he's, he's planning a church and uh, one of my friends and he was telling me that one of the things that led an elder, a, a candidate for, to be an elder in his church away was he was thinking about 
literally all he said was he was making the biblical case that to serve the offering, you don't have to wear a suit. And the guy got so mad, he left his church. And because the guy grew up similar to me, that you don't ever do things, especially in worship, without being dressed in the same way, dressed to the nuns. And there's this way that, you know, this idea of that's not the way we do things versus what does the Bible actually say. I think very few people got this better than Walker Percy. I don't know if you've ever read Signpost in a Strange Land, but he's got some fantastic essays just uh, thinking through the South and the way the South misses things in this way. And I want to read just a quote from uh, one of the, he's got an essay called Stoicism in the South. And here's what he says, thinking about this idea of valuing of tradition over truth. He says this, he says, the Southern gentleman did live in a Christian edifice, but he lived there in the strange fashion Chesterton spoke of. That of a man, this is the image, that of a man who will neither go inside nor put it entirely behind him, but stands forever grumbling in the porch. The Christian porch is no longer habitable. That pleasant sight of cultural Christendom, neither quite inside the church nor altogether in the street, from which one had the best of both church on Sundays and at baptism and marriage and death, and the rest of the time lived in the sunny old stoa of natural grace and good manners. It doesn't work now. The old Christian porch is becoming increasingly inhabitable by moderately serious persons, which is to say our best young people. It is surely not too much to say that if Southern Christendom does not soon demonstrate the relevance of its theology to the single great burning issue in American life, it runs the risk of becoming ever more what in fact it is to a degree already, the pleasant Sunday lodge of conservative Southern businessmen, which offends no one and which no one takes seriously. Percy's writing this in the 50s, late 50s, early 60s. And I love that image. That's so, so, like part of, my, part of growing up in the South is that image of the man grumbling on the porch. He wants part of Christianity, to the part that works for him, but he doesn't want to embrace it fully because he knows the other side what it's going to cost him. He doesn't want his life and the way of life that he's inherited from generations down the this is the way we do things part of life to be challenged, to be changed. So he stands forever grumbling on the porch, neither being able to go in and embrace the way to embrace the gospel or to be able to, to let it go entirely. This is why I think you know, the way that I think about this is this got this idea of being, you know, neither be able to embrace it fully nor give up sort of the life of the street, as Percy says it, is the idea of. It, that, that why in the South are we so afraid of and can't seem to do any kind of open-minded discussion about things? Even, like in the church. Like can't, why can't we talk about things and go back and, and understand, for younger generations to go back and understand, even theological issues, how do we get these uh, from Scripture and, and have this kind of conversation between older generations and younger generations. When I think in the South, you know, I've been in two presbyteries in the South in my denomination, and I can say without a shadow of doubt, we were terrified, and un, not just terrified, but un, unable to have these sort of open-minded discussions about things, because I think in the South we value tradition sometimes over truth. The third thing that I sort of hate about the South, and I, you know, I hope you know when, I'm, when I say that I don't, you know, I'm going to talk about why I love the South, but I hope you're hearing me rightly. Here's the third. There's a rooting, and this one's a little bit, um, I'm still working this one out, but I think there's a rooting of identity in family over church. That there's this idea of, that my last name means something, maybe even more than the new name given to me in the gospel. 
And I think this is certainly part of my story because of my grandparents and because of my dad's side of the family, but I think it's a story for a lot of us. You know, I was recently meeting with one of my, another good friend who's an elder in a really sort of southern historic church, and he was saying one of the hardest things, it's a bigger church, and he was saying one of the hardest things still in, in terms of getting the right church leaders, getting the right elders and deacons in place is the church still really values the big family names in the church. And you'll, you'll still get in every class these names, these guys who probably by character and even maybe by you know, their, their own testimony with the gospel have no, no business being leaders in the church. But because they have family names, they still get in there and they're valued in that way. It makes me think a lot of uh, Paul when he's writing to the, 2 Corinthians 5 and he, he, he's talking about this idea, 2 Corinthians five sixteen, and he says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. I mean, I can remember, I think what this does, what this did in me that created this tension, is I can remember going when I was in high school with my best friend, and we were visiting his grandmother, which was interesting in and of itself, and uh, she, we were just kind of making small talk, and somehow we got on this topic of this family from our town that had pulled their kids out of school to go serve in Africa. And she was, you know, she would have been a professing Christian, and she was horrified at this thought. And she told us, how could you do that to your family? How could you let those kids get no education? How could you let those kids grow up in a place where they you know, barely speak English? How could you do that to your family? And I remember thinking for the first time, wow, this woman is sort of not a Christian? And then she did then go on to give us a, a weird talk about sex, which was another um, <laughs> really... One of the stranger visits I've ever had. Um, but there's a way, I guess this is what I'm still working out, there's a way, and what's dangerous about this, in campus, I, you know, so I've been in campus ministry for nine years, I see lots of students from, all, from, the, from the kind of churches that, that I'm talking about, which are our churches, some of us, and there's this, there's this subtle thing in the name of family values, I think, where family is still almost comes before church and kingdom. Now I want to be careful because I definitely am all for it. Like I'm a pastor. I don't want, you know, I, I never want my family to feel like they're sacrificed at the altar of ministry. But it's also this weirdness when I get students, like I have one student in my, in my ministry right now who, uh, his mom, literally, he, he's a 21 year old man, small M man, um, who wanted to sit with his friends at church. And his mom cried because she wanted him to sit in the family pew. And we had that conversation. I was like, brother, you've got to move out of your house as soon as possible. <laughs> and, I mean, but this idea of, you know, the, their family almost comes before church and kingdom. And their family almost, you know, to the, and I think this is something that I hate about the South. I know it's not just in the South. It's certainly part of it. Here's the fourth one. There's a definite favoring of what Christian Smith calls therapeutic moralistic deism over the gospel. Um, in other words, a God who fits safely within my social agenda, a God that I can safely take to the country club, a God that I can safely take to my you know, suburban life, 
versus a God who turns my life upside down, especially socially, and the kinds, the kinds of people that I hang out with, the kinds of people that I love and know, the kinds of places that I live. Also, you know, a God who safely fits within my political agenda versus a God who, who transcends, whose kingdom transcends every political agenda. And it's going to challenge all of them in different ways. And I think, you know, growing up, I definitely had this idea, and I think my mom is a, is a dear woman. I'm a, I'm a Christian, partly because of my mom's just testimony, the ways that I would go to my room and she would be reading her NIV study Bible and it would be torn to pieces and we'd be driving in her car and she'd be listening to the top 50 Maranatha praise songs. And I can still remember the songs and think, this is terrible. And yet the words would not leave me. You know, I could remember the words. But I still think she believes that God mainly exists to make her feel good, that when she needs him, but she doesn't want him to disturb her life. And this is why I remember, like, part of becoming reformed for me, for me was being with some friends post-college. They had become reformed in their own way, and they were, we were reading Romans 9 together. And it was the first place where I thought, I don't like that. That part of scripture, what God is saying about himself, no, like, I've got to untangle that. And I hear the words of R.C. Sproul saying, you know, we are required to teach and believe what, God, what Scripture actually says, not what we want it to say. Um, and I think growing up in the South, we don't know what to do with the parts of God that we don't like. You know, I think about the first time I ever picked up my wife for a date when I saw her without makeup. My wife, as she was here, she would stamp, stamp of approval this story. She's a true blonde. Blonde eyebrows, blonde eyelashes. And we were in college, and I picked her up for the first time, and I got there a little early, and I remember walking through the door, and my wife had yet to put on her makeup, and I thought, who, like, who is this person? I don't know who this is. We, we laugh a lot about it, but I think that's how I felt reading Romans 9. I was like, let's put some makeup on this passage, because I don't like what I'm seeing about God, and I think the South did not help me there. Because I think the South does say God mainly therapeutic, moralistic deism versus a God... Uh, Flannery's, I'm going to quote her several times, but she's got this fantastic line in her letter from The Habit of Being where she says, a God that you understood would be less than yourself. A God that you fully understood would be less than yourself. And I think the South didn't help me there. So that's what I hate about the South. But now just I want to think for a little bit about why I love the South. And I think there are four or five things here um, looking at it. Because I do think uh, it's easy, and this is part of what I feel compelled to say today, I think it's easy for us, especially in the name of the gospel, to just really dismiss the South and Southern culture and totally overlook. You know, part of me wants to say, like, God has called us to love the South if he's placed us here. And there are things that we're going to absolutely challenge and hate about it, but there are also things that we're going to begin to love and appreciate about it. And I think as I was thinking, it was good for me to think about, what, why am I glad I grew up in the South? Why am I glad that I live and minister the gospel in the South to students who mainly come from southern towns? And I think there are four things I was thinking about. I'll just get there quickly. Here's the first. That I love the South because there's this resourceful and hospitable enjoyment of the gifts of creation. A resourceful and hospitable enjoyment of the gifts of creation. I think about, this is what I was thinking about. Moonshine. Uh, boiled peanuts. I mean, we passed Sweatman's, one of my favorite barbecue places. Just barbecue the idea in general. I mean, this incredible fr fried anything. I mean, it's like we don't, 
we might not have the best or anything, but we're going to fry it, and it's going to taste good. <laughs> like, I kind of hope the new heavens, new earth, the, I kind of hope the cuisine is, is southern, selfishly. I know it's not, I know the kingdom's going to be bigger than that. Um, but then I think about not just the resourcefulness, but I think about, too, this, the enjoyment of it. You know, it reminds me of that great uh, Chesterton line. You know it when Chesterton, he's thinking about, he has this great line where he says, you, you say grace before meals, all right, but I say grace before the concert and the opera and grace before the play and the pantomime and grace before I open a book and grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing, and grace before I dip the pen in the ink. And then I think Chesterton had a lot of hobbies. It makes me feel <laughs> kind of lame. But I love that idea of, of enjoying the gifts of creation. And I think the best parts of the South, I know the fundamentalist part of the South does not do this very well, and a lot of us have that kind of baggage, and a lot of us overreact to that kind of baggage. But I love that idea. But I also love that oftentimes I think the South in some ways paves the way of, of showing us in some ways as Christians how to do hospitality, how to bring people in, how to, how to open the home. You know, it made me think about how it seems like in the gospel some of Jesus's some of, his, some of his best moments of, of ministry happen through the hospitality of his culture. And I think in some ways we have things to learn from the way that the South can teach us about something about both the enjoyment of, of the gifts of creation and the hospitality of bringing, opening our home and bringing in a kingdom mindset the, the, you know, people in our neighborhoods and people of all walks of life into our homes to enjoy it with us. A, a second thing that I love about the South is what I just simply want to call the art of storytelling and the feeling that history really doesn't matter. You know, we uh, did this conference a few years ago, and we had this student who comes around who, if he were to be here today, I mean, he's just, he's one of those students where you think, wow, we really do live in the South. He's got kind of a handlebar mustache, but it's not ironic. Like, he wears, like, white T-shirts and just, you know, sort of high-waist jeans and these white new mount shoes. He's an engineer. He's at Carolina just to get through engineering and go get a job. And he's, but when you hear him talk, like, it's the most... Like, I know I kind of have a southern accent, but his accent makes mine look not, you know, like northern. And here, he's come to this, he comes to this fall retreat with us, and we're sitting around the campfire, and something happens that night where we just decide we're going to tell stories, and this guy gets going, and he tells like 10 stories, and we're all just like, you know, we are totally focused on him. And it makes me think, this is part of what I love about the South. Very few storytellers, I mean, there's so many good storytellers, because I think, if you think about the culture of the South, there is this tragedy, there are these characters, there's, there's redemption. And I think what I love about that is it makes us ripe. Not only do we kind of know and care about our history, but I think it makes us ripe for the history of redemption. I think it makes us ripe for thinking about the gospel in terms of creation, fall, redemption, new heavens, new earth, telling the story. I mean, I can remember the first time I ever heard someone connect the story of the gospel from the Old Testament. It was a, the most southern preacher I still to this day have ever heard. He was preaching on Joseph, and he, all he simply did was, was point, bring to my attention that Joseph in so many ways is a type of Christ. And it opened up scripture for me in ways that I was like, there is a story here that is being told that I've grown up in the South and missed, but yeah, I was so kind of ripe for. Here's the third one. I think there's a, a genuine love of people and place in the South, a genuine love, um, uh, you know, for, to, to be in one place and to love one kind of people. You know, sometimes in my sinfulness, I think about Sumter, the town I grew up in, and I think, <laughs> it's so easy for me to look at and be like, who would ever want to live there? Not me. 
I don't want to move my family. If my wife were here, she'd be like, uh-uh, we are not moving back to Sumner, South Carolina. I would rather die. And I'm kind of like, yeah, I mean, I get that. Like, Applebee's was the only place we had to go. I mean, like, my friends and I would drive to Columbia to go to TGI Fridays because we thought Build Your Own Burger was, incre- was incredible <laughs> because all we knew was Applebee's. And, and there's a sense of it. Again, I, was, I already mentioned grabbing lunch with these seminary friends just the other day, and there's this one guy. And he was telling us about it. He's, he's, in, a, a, he's a, in a town outside of Rock Hill, South Carolina. He's been there 14 years. I mean, this is like a sharp, sharp guy that could go anywhere. He's been there 14 years, and I was asking him, I was like, Do you, are you going to stay there? He's like, I want to spend the rest of my life here. And I get convicted about that because I think, some, that's just not how I think. Loving a people in a place in the long haul, and I know the Lord moves us where he wants us, but that idea was really convicting. Zach Eswine, in Sensing Jesus, says it like this. He says, no matter how great or gifted we are, God invites us to himself for the sake of local people in a local place with the long learning of local knowledge in Jesus until he comes. This means that if you are wearing yourselves out trying to be and do more than this, Jesus is calling you to stop all of this tramping about and come finally home. The great work to be done is right in front of you with the persons and places that his providence has granted you. And the last thing I love about the South is I think there's a deep understanding of suffering and loss. I think there's a deep understanding of, of losing. You know, both Percy and O'Connor will say, part of why the South produces such great writers is we lost. Um, and I think there's something that, that was, is big for us in terms of connecting that our being made in the likeness of the glory of Christ is going to come with being made like Christ in his suffering. You know, it's funny, I, I'll, I'll close with this, just thinking about how the Lord has been at work in me to, to kind of move me from being a son of the South to being a son of the gospel. And I think that's, that's what I have for you. Because I want to be a small picture of why ministry in the South matters, is we have the, the, the joy and the responsibility of moving men like me, women like me, who have grown up their whole lives in this sort of Southern way of thinking. And we have the joy of seeing Jesus move them from that to being a son and daughter of the gospel. And the way that I like to think about it is, you know, so I went from thinking my whole life the most important thing was, you know who my fifth great grandfather is? Thomas Sumter. And now I think, yeah, okay, that's okay. But do you know who my father is? Because of Jesus' work on the cross for me, my father is God. And I love that idea of we get to be part of that in people's lives. So I'm going to pray for us. You know. Father, we do thank you for the gospel, and we thank you for the ways that uh, you love us far more than we even know. And uh, Lord, I I do pray that you would move us more into the likeness of your Son, and show us the blind spots especially. Lord, give us that kind of love for our people, we pray. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thoughts I got